While we were uh, singing that last song, I saw green eggs and ham sitting here. And I thought, maybe I can make a funny preacher reference from green eggs and ham. And I suddenly had a flashback uh, to my freshman year at Oklahoma Christian, where one of the professors, I think it was Dr. Bill Pink, uh, opened the, the first week Follies, which is a talent show, with a rendition of Green Eggs and Ham delivered in the cadence and passion uh, of a black church revival. And he got that auditorium hopping. <laughs> and for about half a second, I thought, maybe I could do that. And then I remembered, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. Um, but man, it really reminds you that when it comes to good preaching, that some of it is delivery and some of it is content. And when it comes to good worship, some of it is delivery and some of it is content. And we're going to kind of be exploring that a little bit this morning. Uh, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, uh, officially signed into law by Ronald Reagan in 1983, uh, recognizing the civil rights leader uh, everyone knows that, that he played that role. We sometimes forget that he was also a preacher, uh, and his preaching and his civic work were not separate in his mind. Uh, he was really someone, uh, he's always been one of my favorite preachers to go back and read his sermons. Uh, eloquent and forceful, as brilliant as he was passionate, uh, he believed that the good news of the gospel should transform this world to look more like the kingdom of God. And so in his preaching and in his leadership, he's constantly, wherever he sees the world not looking like the kingdom of God, he had an ability to call it out and to say that things should be different. He was more than a speaker and a preacher. He was a leader. He had an incredible ability, and there's so few Christian leaders that have this today, the ability to look at a problem in the world and the resources at hand and come up with a way to remove the problem and replace it with something better. And the truth is that the church needs more leaders that lead that way and less through teaching, and, 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 but just getting out in the world and changing it to look like God's kingdom. He was also a dreamer. He always believed the world could improve. He believed that people would do the right thing if it was presented to them and they were convinced that it was the right thing. But the problem with being a dreamer and a leader and someone that calls on the world to change uh, is that systems and organizations, families and nations have a natural resistance to change. There's a law of inertia uh, that says that an object in motion tends to stay in motion and an object at rest tends to stay at rest. Well, groups of people function the same way as something that sociologists have learned over time. That if there's a group of people and one of the people in the group says, I think we need to change something, even while everyone may be nodding their head, there's at least some in the group who are already working to prevent that change from happening. There is a resistance to newness, a resistance for the unfamiliar. So on that day in 1968, when Dr. King was assassinated, there's dispute about whether it was James Earl Ray who killed Martin Luther King Jr. or somebody else. The truth is that anybody that was part of the system that resisted the good changes he was trying to bring into our world has some responsibility in his death. So we see that, that as he pushed us forward, there are always some who are pulling us back. 
And today I'm, I'm not going to preach at length about uh, Dr. King, but what I want to do today is tell the story behind the final words that he said before he was shot on April 4th, 1968. He and his colleagues there in that room were planning a fundraiser for that evening. And he looked over at the musician who would be leading worship that evening, a guy named Bill Branch, and he said to him, Ben, tonight play Precious Lord in the meeting and play it real pretty. Precious Lord, hold my hand was the song that he was mentioning. And he said that, that it was one of his favorite songs, and he told Ben to play it real pretty. Uh, it was often uh, another singer, Mahalia Jackson, a great gospel singer who would sing that at the rallies. Uh, she was Martin Luther King's favorite singer, and that was his favorite song. And in those final moments when he says, Ben, play Precious Lord in the meeting tonight and play it real pretty, came the moment that he was shot. So that night, Precious, Precious Lord, Take My Hand was not played at a fundraiser. Instead, it was played several days later and performed by singer Mahalia Jackson at his funeral. And it was, in its own way, the most painfully wonderful song for that moment. And it was, in its own way, the most painfully wonderful song for the civil rights movement. It's the most painfully wonderful song for anyone, even today, who continues to say, God, the world is not the way that it should be. And God, I wish things were different. And so until they are, God, please just take my hand. And God, if you could just take my hand, I can get through this. Until I go to the, the final rivers looking over in the promised land, if you'll just hold my hand between then and now, I can get through this. And today what I want to do is tell you the story of that song. The story of the song, Precious Lord, Hold My Hand. Because it's a beautiful story about a wonderful person who creates a song that becomes a legend in its own right. A great influence for many Christians and churches uh, throughout the last uh, century. And it all began... Uh, not in the 1900s, but just at the turn of the century in 1899, when Thomas Dorsey had a son who he named Tommy Dorsey. Tommy Dorsey was born in a small town in Georgia in July of 1899, and his father was a sharecropping farmer during the week. But on the weekends, he became a preacher. And Thomas would go to, from church to church, and any church that would have him, he would preach the good news. And any church that would listen, he would proclaim the gospel. He grew up, Tommy, listening to his father preach and watching him farm. And while they lived meal to meal, barely getting by, there was something unusual about this poor family in the South. They had an organ. And his mother would play gospel music and hymns on that organ all the time. And when they would go to church, she would play the church songs. And so he grew up hearing the music of the church. And he saw his mother playing and his father preaching. And if you're a little bit anxious that this story has musical instruments in worship, don't worry. I found an article that said that whenever his father was preaching out of town, that often Tommy and his mother would go visit a church with shaped notes worship. See? We've got a little page in the story. 
And he loved going to that church because he loved how they would blend the harmonies, the dissonance that becomes so complementary, the diversity and the unity uh, in that church. And he grew up with those influences as well. His mother, Etta Plant Spencer, was an influence in his life in both music and faith. Uh, and when Tommy and his, was about eight years old, his family got to the point that it was, it was too difficult living where they were, and they moved to Atlanta, the big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And as an eight-year-old making that change from the small town to the big city, he got kind of lost at school. He struggled in his studies. His grades weren't where he needed to be. He got held back for a year, and he just continued to have a difficult time finding his way as a student at the school. And so by the age of 12, he had dropped out of school entirely. With all this free time and no direction, he began spending all of his time down the street at the 81 Theater. The 81 Theater was not... Uh, what you might expect as a movie theater. It was a place where all kinds of performances were going on all the time. Mostly it featured blues bands, vaudeville acts, and he loved being there and watching the musicians performing all kinds of different acts and music and things. And he got a job working concessions there and every day spent hours practicing on the family organ. He had another family member that had a piano and he'd go play their piano. And every time he was at uh, the 81 Theater, any musician that would give him any attention or any instruction or any lesson at all, he just ate it up and he absorbed it. And as he learned to play more and more instruments, he eventually learned how to read music. And after a while, he began, though meagerly compensated, he would play rent parties, house parties, barrel houses, and brothels. And as a young teenage boy who was a pretty good musician, he found a lot of different ways to enjoy the life of the musician. When he turned 20, he decided he wanted an even bigger city experience, and he moved to Chicago. But he found out, to his surprise, when he moved to Chicago, that they didn't like the blues much up north. They wanted their upbeat jazz. And so when he got there, he found that he wasn't getting much success in his performances, and he turned to writing music and copywriting music. And so when he, in 1920, copy wrote, copy writ, copy written, his first song, <laughs> it was called, If You Don't Believe I'm Leaving, Just Count the Days I'm Gone. Here's the ending to the song so you can have a sense of the kind of music he was coming from. He says, well, you gave me your word, but even so, things I heard are true, I know. Since you're the kind who shares your heart, you're going to find it's better that we're far apart. Because there's no point deceiving you, because I don't, just don't believe in you. If you don't believe I'm leaving, just count the days I'm gone. It really cuts to the chase. As he did get that song published, it became one of the very first blues songs ever copyrighted. And by that time, uh, he didn't have much interest in God. He didn't have much interest in the church. He wasn't interested in gospel music. He was having all the fun he could have in the blues world, in the vaudeville world, and jazz. So after a time, uh, he began touring with other musicians and writing songs for all kinds of people. But on one occasion, he heard W.M. Nix singing a gospel song called, I Do, Don't You?, it was at a church convention, and he was hooked by the performance of the song. And it wasn't just the content of the song which got him. It was the delivery. 
W.M. Nix had this ability in his singing to add accent to some parts of the songs and reduce the accent in other. He would draw some words out very intentionally to heighten their meaning while quickening others. He took liberties with the music, and, and Tommy had never seen this before. He'd never seen someone put so much feeling into their worship. And the song that he heard, I Do, Don't You, here's the first and last verses of that song, I know a great savior, savior, I do, don't you? I live by his favor, I do, don't you? For grace I implore him, I worship before him, I love and adore him, I do, don't you? The last verse ends with the question, For service to choose me, I do, don't you? I want him to bless me, to own and confess me, completely possess me, I do, don't you? Tommy was struck by this performance of a gospel song. He didn't know that such feeling could be infused into gospel music, and and it took hold of him, and it became part of his imagination. Uh, But there wasn't much opportunity for him to really get into the gospel scene. And so instead, he took up a job traveling with Ma Rainey, writing songs that were blues and jazz and vaudeville. And while touring, he met and fell in love with Nettie Harper. He and Nettie loved each other very much. Nettie uh, did not have any particular skill set that would uh, encourage her to be part of a traveling music group. But Ma Rainey saw that her songwriter was in love, and she asked uh, Nettie, hey, why don't you be part of my assistant wardrobe uh, crew? You can help take care of my clothes while we travel. You can go on the road with me. And it was soon after that that Nettie and Tommy were married. And they traveled together, and they perf- they, he continued to write songs, and Ma Rainey continued to sing the songs, and he continued to prosper in his music career. Until about a year later, when Thomas got what he would describe as a kind of illness that sent him into a deep depression. This was one year after he's married. He's still traveling and having success with his music, except this illness causes him to be extremely depressed on a very regular basis. He would later report that on several occasions while battling this illness that he contemplated suicide, and he wanted anything to get out of this deep darkness that he was in during this season of his life. During that depression in one of those dark seasons, his sister-in-law invited him to go to church. And after battling this illness for two years, he goes to church and the preacher comes up and prays over him. And he felt the illness and the depression leave him and it would never come back. At that moment, Tommy vowed that he would give the rest of his life to focusing on gospel music. The music of the church, the music that would tell people the good news of who God was and what he had done for Tommy and what he had done for us. But there were two problems with Tommy's commitment to commit to gospel music. (coughs) The first one is this, is that the traditionalist in the church thought that blues and gospel should never meet, that they had no business being part of the same music that came into the church. While the blues was growing in popularity in the 1920s, black churches, especially in Chicago, condemned it widely for being associated with sin and hedonism. Music performed in established black churches in Chicago and throughout the U.S. came from hymnals and was performed as written. 
Personal expressions such as clapping, stomping, and improvising with lyrics, rhythm, and melody were actively discouraged as being unrefined and degrading to the music and the singer. What you're going to find out in the story is if you today have ever been to a black church and been blessed by their energy and their expressiveness and their enthusiasm and thought, man, what a great thing for this church to have. They have it because of the ministry and influence of Tommy. Because he would eventually launch choirs all over the United States that would bring in this new energy into worship. Because prior to him doing that, uh, churches would say, that's not the way we do things here. And the second problem with Tommy's commitment to, to come up with uh, a way to infuse gospel music into his ministry and into his life and into his work is there was a lot more money in the blues than there was in church music. And so it didn't take long than in an attempt to support his commitment to the gospel that he ended up having to take up some other songwriting back in the blues world. And when that took off, it was pretty easy to forget about the commitment to the gospel music again. He started collaborating and performing with an artist called Tampa Red. And they went from being Tampa Red and Georgia Tom was his stage name to creating over 60 songs in five years. And they became to be known as the Hokum Boys. And he was on tour and he was back into that musician's life. But in 1930, some of his friends in the gospel music scene got their hooks back in him. They invited him back into the church. And so one Sunday in Chicago's Pilgrim Baptist Church, he was playing the piano and he got so excited that he couldn't sit while he played. And he stood up and was swaying around and the congregation was so moved that he was immediately hired as their worship minister. Now, finally, Tommy had the ability to make good on his vow to focus on gospel music, to tell the story of Jesus to a world that needs to hear it. He began by launching a national coalition of gospel choirs, and they brought this new style of lively, passionate, active worship into the church. Tommy often said that he'd been kicked out of some of the best churches in the country uh, for the kind of worship that he was trying to bring. And while the traditionalists pushed against his influence, something else was happening in the United States. As they kind of said, there's not a place in the church for this kind of music, there was a great migration uh, of black Americans from the south up into the north in the larger cities, especially Chicago. So suddenly these churches uh, where Tommy is performing and where he is making this influence of a new kind of music that combines the language of the world and the language of the church and the music of the world and the music of the church. He's doing this work, and all of a sudden, a whole bunch of Southerners start coming into the churches. And do you know what they love more than anything? They love Jesus, and they love the blues. Suddenly, his music starts to become more popular. And churches that just a few months before wouldn't even consider using some of the songs he was writing were using many of his songs. Things begin changing all over Chicago, and within a year, his national coalition of, of choirs had over 3,500 members in 24 states, and his choir had 600 singers and performed in 1933 at the Chicago World's Fair. Things were really moving for Tommy. But while that was happening, as he was just beginning to launch all of these choirs and all of these choruses, he would later tell of a very personal story that was going on in his personal life. 
And I want to read to you how he described this event in his life. He says, back in 1932, I was 32 years old and a fairly new husband. My wife Nettie and I were living in a little apartment on Chicago's south side. One hot August afternoon, I had to go to St. Louis, where I was to be the featured soloist at a large revival meeting. I didn't want to go. Nettie was in her last month of her pregnancy with our first child, but a lot of people were expecting me in St. Louis. In the steaming St. Louis heat, the crowd called on me to sing again and again. And when I finally sat down, a messenger boy ran up with a Western Union telegram. I ripped open the envelope. Pasted on the yellow sheet were the words, your wife just died. When I got back, I learned that Nettie had given birth to a boy. I swung between grief and joy, yet that night, my baby son also died. I buried Nettie and our little boy together in the same casket. Then I fell apart. For days, I closeted myself. I felt that God had done me an injustice. I didn't want to serve him anymore or write gospel songs. I just wanted to go back to that jazz world I once knew so well. Still, I was lost in grief. Everyone was kind to me, especially a friend, Professor Fry, who seemed to know exactly what I needed. On the following Saturday evening, he took me up to Malone's Poro College, a neighborhood music school. It was quiet. The late evening sun crept through the curtain windows. I sat down at the piano, and my hands began to browse over the keys. Dorsey remembered an old uh, pentatonic five-note melody from his Sunday school days, a song called Maitland from the United Methodist Hymnal, uh, another song by George Allen, and he paired it with the text, Must Jesus Bear the Cross Alone? And as the words of that text and the notes of that song came together, he began arranging this tune and adding his own words, Precious Lord. Precious Lord became the most famous of his many gospel songs. He gave the song to Fry and said, take this to church. Fry took the song, Precious Lord, and he took it to church at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church the next Sunday an event that Dorsey later remarked tore up the church. It so moved them. The pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta at that time, beginning the year before that, was Martin Luther King Sr. And what we see when we look at the stories that God works through people and God works through his churches, God weaves through circumstances. And God weaves through our own shortcomings and, and our mistakes. And he uses what the world would intend as harm for us for our own good. And he goes with us when he sends us, even when we think we're walking away from it. And he uses the gifts that he gives us for his good purposes and his glory. And so in the midst of, of his worst night of suffering, Tommy Dorsey writes the song that eventually would go on to be in the Christian Music Hall of Fame. Tommy Dorsey would become the first African-American in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. He wrote over 3,000 songs with over 1,000 of them gospel hymns. The song was performed at the funerals of Martin Luther King and President Lyndon B. Johnson. 
It's been recorded by Aretha Franklin, Mahalia Jackson, Elvis Presley, Blind Connie Williams, and many others with some variation. It's been published in over 40 languages. But here's the words Tommy wrote, grieving the death of his wife and son in 1932. The lyrics to that song. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I am tired. I am weak. I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. When my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand lest I fall. When the darkness appears and the night draws near, and the day is past and gone, at the river I stand. Guide my feet, hold my hand. My message for you today is an invitation to never forget that God is with you, and that God is for you, and God is working in you, and God is working through you. That he does all of this, not for your benefit, although you are often blessed because of it, but he does it for his good purposes. He weaves and reweaves a story for your life that you may not ever see what he's up to until all of a sudden you have a moment that step back and you see the masterpiece that God has produced in you to bless the world because of what God's done in you and through you. When you look at the world and you think this is not how God wants things to be, you're right. God would love love for you to partner with him in changing it. And if you look at the world and you think, I don't understand my part in this, that's okay. God can work through you even if you don't understand how he's doing it. If we let God work his power in our lives, the world will start to look more like the kingdom of God until the day that it, that it is, passes away and this world is gone and his kingdom is established forever. And on that day, we will stand at the river of heaven and stand and still say, precious Lord, hold my hand. Until then, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're going through. It's what makes this song, it's what gives it the weight. It has the heart of the blues, of a crying out that things aren't the way they're supposed to do, but the promise of the gospel that they will be eventually. And so in the tough days, you can remember, precious Lord, take my hand, and remember that in the midst of even this, God gets us through it. In the midst of even what's next, God gets us through it. In the midst of the funeral of someone that's been changing the world, God gets us through it. In the midst of great personal loss, when a wife and child die unexpectedly, God gets us through it. So now Dante's going to lead us as we stand and sing, Precious Lord, take my hand. When my way.